we have come at last to that part of Matthew's gospel where Jesus starts arguing with Pharisees. We heard a little bit of that last week. We're going to hear a little bit more next week. This is the great drama between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were kind of like the Episcopalians of their day. The New Testament mostly paints a pretty unfair picture of them. The historical record gives us a little more nuance. Phariseeism was actually a progressive movement in, in first century Judaism. You wouldn't necessarily pick that up from the Gospels. But it was dedicated to finding the heart of the law, finding the heart of the Torah. It's actually what we kind of just sang, Torah Ora, right? The law is our light. That might be the Pharisees' song. They were pretty liberal, actually, when it came to interpreting scripture. They were not scriptural literalists. On questions of divorce and remarriage, they were surprisingly lenient, actually, a lot more lenient than Jesus and his followers were. They were pretty conservative, though, when it came to the ancient traditions around clothing and worship practices. They seem to have been fond of wide phylacteries and long tassels. And as somebody who spends an awful lot of time thinking about the aesthetics of vestments and altar linens and candlesticks, they have my sympathy. <laughs> long phylacteries are just more fun. I'm sorry, Jesus. So I get where these guys are coming from. They were pretty popular among the, among the masses. They were regarded as the guys who, you know, like the real deal, the guys who walked the walk. And Jesus himself was probably, possibly, aligned with them, at least at first. And then things start to go off the rails. And as soon as Jesus runs afoul of the Pharisees, things get pretty bad, pretty fast. So despite the harsh judgment that the Pharisees get in this story from Matthew's Gospel, actually what this text doesn't tell us is that the Pharisees won when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 by the Roman army, the Pharisees were the ones who were left standing. The Pharisees, and then also this other weird Jewish sect called followers of the anointed one or followers of the way. The Pharisees escaped to Yavna on the Mediterranean coast. That's right where the Hamas bombs have been falling, actually, just north of the Gaza Strip this weekend. So the origins of rabbinic Judaism can be traced to them, right? To their reinterpretation of their tradition without a temple at, their, at, at its center. We might say the Pharisees created contemporary Judaism. And then this other group, these other exiles from the bombed-out disaster that was Jerusalem, they became the Christians. And they're the ones who give us this story, right? These traumatized Jewish Christian exiles. They give us this parable of Jesus told to indict their, their great enemies, right? The Pharisees, to establish themselves then as the inheritors of this new movement, a mixed movement of Jews and Gentiles. Truly, I tell you, they have their Jesus say, God's kingdom, God's vineyard, the house of Israel, we might say, that is being taken away from you and given to the nations, the people, literally to the goyim, right? That's where we get our word for Gentile. This is the Ur text. Right? This is the origin text of Christian supersessionism, the idea that God has abandoned the people of Israel and has replaced them with the church. And you don't need me to stand up here and tell you where that idea goes. Right? You give Christians the keys to the empire, access to money and influence and power, and boy, howdy, have we taken it to the bank. Centuries of anti-Semitic violence in its wake, all because... Jesus and the Pharisees squabbled over the size of their phylacteries. So I'm kind of over this parable, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I think it's got a little bit too much blood on its hands. Certainly, I am weary of trotting it out every three years on the Sunday we launch our annual giving campaign. <laughs> 
it's really hard to make the dark roots of Christian anti-Semitism square with a pitch for supporting your favorite Episcopal cathedral with a pledge of financial support. I, went, I actually went back and checked the record because I feel like I've preached this text on Stewardship Day before, and sure enough, like every time we've, every, this, lecture, this story comes up every three years in the lectionary, and over the past decade that I have been doing annual giving campaigns, this is the story that has launched us every time. And because I get in trouble with my bishop if I depart from the lectionary cycle, there you've got it, right? As a good Pharisee or a good Episcopalian might say, rules are rules. So make your peace with them. They're there for a reason. Jesus, however, does not seem to have much patience for that particular approach, that very Episcopalian, very hierarchical form of religious observance. Christians have, tra have traditionally read this story as a sign that we are the favored ones, right? But there is no mention of the church in this parable. In fact, Jesus has actually made it very clear, just a couple verses before our story, Jesus has made it very clear who, God who's got, who God's favored ones are. We heard it last week, right? The story that comes right before this one. He says to the Pharisees, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. That's who gets the kingdom. It's not the church. It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It's the the drug pushers and the drag queens. It's the cheats and the thugs and the fentanyl users. His goal is to provoke them. His goal is to offend them, and he does it. And until I, until I can hear the original scandal, I think, of this text, the ways in which this text was designed to unsettle certainly some people, religious people, we might say, religious leaders, until I can hear the scandal in this text that actually maybe God doesn't care a fig about respectability politics. Until I hear the scandal of that, I think I'm missing the point. It's not a story about the church. Or maybe it is a story about the church, just not in the ways that we were taught. I kind of want to sit with this idea for just a second, not just as a, not just as a way of, of pushing back against the horrific anti-Judaism that has crept into the story over the centuries, but a way, as a way of thinking a little more, a little more deeply about who it is that has a claim on God's kingdom. Who's got a right to God's vineyard? Who are the wicked tenants? And whom is God sending in their place? What if we are not the ones that Jesus has in mind? Because the church has not been a very good steward of this vineyard, I think. Certainly on this weekend, right, when we remember the 531st anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America, quote unquote, his landing on the island of Hispaniola on October 8th, 1492. Some of you know that date, right? That's because of the doctrine of discovery. That's why he's there. That's, that's the church's gift, <laughs> curse, if you like, to generations of conquistadors and explorers and politicians and Supreme Court justices. I mean, this thing is the basis for a lot of US, US law. It's the basis for a lot of our, uh, our Native American policies to this day. The Doctrine of Discovery is this idea promulgated by popes in papal bowls that an, un, an, an empty land is open for Christian conversion and that the people there are not full humans and they can be killed. This is the text that Spanish conquistadors read to natives when they, when they landed in the New World. I certify to you, the explorer would have said, that with the help of God, we shall now powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses, the king and queen of Spain. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them and such as, and as such shall sell and dispossess of them as your highnesses may command 
and we shall take away your goods and shall do all the mischief and damage that we can. As to vassals who do not obey and refuse to receive their Lord and resist and contradict him, and we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this are your fault. Truly, I tell you, the kingdom of God is being taken away from you and is being given to us, the people who are dedicated, supposedly, to enacting the mercies of God. That's a tricky legacy. We have not stewarded this vineyard well if it was ever ours to begin with. So, this is to not come as a surprise to you. you know, I'm a leader of a Christian institution. This is a thing that I think about a lot. I joined this church, this Episcopal church, largely as a, as a way of getting away from that way of thinking about religion, right? I, I, I did, wasn't born in this church. I came to it by choice. And for most of its history, for much of its, certainly its recent history, the Episcopal church has actually been a place where a lot of, a lot of trouble has happened as a result of taking dangerous stands for the, for the, for the sake of the gospel. This, this particular vineyard, this church, with all of her foibles and her follies, her obsession with rules and regulations, her, her insistence on doing things decently and in good order, I mean, this church has treated me really well. I'm here by choice. And we're not perfect, right? No institution is perfect. But I've largely been convinced that we're on the right side of things. It was 20 years ago, it was 20, 2003, that Gene Robinson was elected the Bishop of New Hampshire. He was the first openly queer person to serve as a bishop in a major Christian denomination. As a result of that, of that election, the church that I was attending in eastern Washington split. A bunch of people left. Some of them, good and faithful Christians, had been sitting on my discernment committee, and they couldn't stomach it. So we navigated that. I got ordained anyway, even though a bunch of them had some deep, deep misgivings about gay clergy. And I remember a couple years later, hearing one Episcopalian say to another in a meeting, it's like Gene Robinson became a bishop, and the gays just waltzed in and took over. And then she said, huh, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who possess the fruits of the kingdom. That's what I thought for a little while. I thought we were on the right side of this thing. I still do. And my sense of what it means to lead an institution, to be a part of an institution, to be a, you know, a, a fully enfranchised member of the church pension plan, that has really been tested lately, not just because of the doctrine of discovery. Although we're wrestling with that, the Episcopal Church repudiated it in 2009, but I mean, the Episcopal Church repudiating stuff doesn't mean a heck of beans anywhere. Nobody really cares what we, what we repudiate. The question is, what do you stand for? And that's my question, I think, for this community, certainly, but also for my denomination, this denomination that I love, that wants to say we stand for justice and for full inclusion. We welcome everybody. We love plastering that. Episcopalians love like putting a rainbow flag on everything we can possibly put a rainbow flag on. We pride ourselves on our stance of inclusion. My sense is that marketing ploy masks a deeper ambivalence. I am watching my friends and colleagues be brought before their bishop on charges right now. I think we're in a time where the rules are shifting really quickly, and the church canons, the church doctrines, the church rules are being used once again in some places to enforce and keep some people in line, because we're still pretty invested in respectability politics. You can be open, you can be who you are, you, we love the gays, just don't rock the boat, right? We're a denomination that's struggling with that. What does it mean to be radically welcoming? What does it mean to be radically welcoming and largely white? 
What does it mean for us here in this cathedral, this little, little slice of Gothic architecture plopped down in the middle of the Pacific Northwest? What does it mean for us to stand up there every Sunday and say we stand on land that has historically been stewarded by the, by the Multnomah and Clackamas bands of the Chinook peoples? The Chinook peoples are still around. The descendants of the Multnomah and Clackamas bands are part of the tribe of the Grand Ronde. Just in the last couple of years, Willamette Falls, right, that beautiful site of industry for as long as I've been around, for as long as there have been Europeans in this part of the world, that site has been purchased once again by the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. Truly, I tell you, the vineyard is being taken away from you and it's being purchased by people who probably should have had it to begin with. We're watching the change of ownership happen. We're watching it happen in all kinds of ways. For some of us, that is hugely exciting. That's liberating. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? The, the disenfranchised, those who have historically been marginalized and pushed to the borders, they are coming into this thing now. The vineyard belongs to them. It always did. And now we can all see it. For others of us, that is really complicated. That's pretty threatening. It's pretty threatening for a lot of Episcopalians, I think. We're not sure what to make of this new world, this new woke culture, all the new rules around what you can and can't say or how people identify or falling all over ourselves trying to accommodate. I think for some of us, there's a significant pushback to a lot of that. I think we're seeing some of that pushback right now. Handing over the vineyard does not come easy. It comes with a cost. And so Jesus puts this beautiful idea in the middle of that very tense situation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's what I, that's what I want to ask my church. That's what I want to ask my denomination. That's what I want, I want to ask my fellow Christians, Catholics, Evangelicals, Protestants, you know, you name it, right? All the different ways in which the name of Jesus is being bandied about in our culture to mean 8,000 different things. So what's our cornerstone? What are we here for? What are we founded on? In just a, in a little bit, Andy's going to come up and talk with you a little bit about the annual giving campaign. He's going to tell us actually a little, I think, Andy, if you, if you do this part of it, he's going to tell you a little bit about the cornerstone of this building, which we actually know a little bit about. We've been here for a while. We've been here for over 100 years. And this community stands for something, I think. Maybe we stand for something that's a little bit different from the aims and, uh, and goals of our, first, of our first founders, or maybe, actually, the work that we have been, do been doing on this little corner of 19th and Everett, maybe that work actually is a lot more consistent down through the generations. This is the thing that gives me hope, right, in a world in which institutions are complicated and doing all kinds of violence, often in the name of Jesus. The thing that gives me hope is that week after week, you all gather in this space. You were doing it for generations before I came onto the scene. You'll be doing it for, I believe, I hope, generations after I'm gone. And when we come here, we bring our full selves, right? We bring the places where we're hurting, the places where we, we yearn for something better than what we were handed. And then we put that yearning to work, right? We feed people. We look them in the eye. We dig underneath the surface of their lives. We don't accept the, the, surface, the surface patterns, but we ask some deeper questions about who they are and what, what brought them to, to that place. That's a way of loving them, right? That's a way of paying attention. That's a way, if you like, of pushing back against generations, centuries of Christians walking onto a, walking onto a property and saying, this is ours now. Our tact, our cornerstone, if you like, is to gently detach ourselves from that colonialist impulse and look people in the eye and say, what can I do for you? How can I help? 
And maybe the answer is, there's not much I have to offer except my presence, except my love, except the fact that I am here with you right now. And we are two human beings in this space on equal ground before our God. So we come into this space, right? Some of us bring a, a whiff of the crazy Saturday night we had last night. Some of us bring decades of decorum and good manners. We bring our obsession with color-coordinated coffee coasters. We bring our, our weak church coffee. We have all the markings, the smell of the wood and the paint and the stained glass. And I am here for it. I'm here for all of it. I don't need a, a, a with-it-woke, scandalous church that just exists to be cool. That's boring. That gets old. What I'm looking for, the cornerstone of this institution that I want to claim, is a real church. I want a church that shows me how to love people who are different from me. And that is what this community teaches me. On the days that I am not sure I can make my peace with being a Pharisee, because that's who I am. I'm a religious leader who cares a lot about tradition. And on the days when that feels like a pretty immoral thing to be, this community reminds me of what the project actually is. It's not about propping up the institutions. It's not about supporting a denomination. It's not even about property and budget, although that stuff matters, right? That's a part of our work. But Sunday after Sunday, Trinity, you remind me of what a community focused on Jesus looks like on the ground. You get me in touch with the cornerstone. And what that, what that kingdom starts to look like, I think, is what we've re we heard about in Isaiah. It starts to look like a vineyard. In this part of the world, we know vineyards, right? These places where stuff was planted maybe decades ago, brought in from somewhere else, plopped down in the middle of this little corner of the world by people that we didn't know. And those vines continue to bear fruit. The ancient vines are producing, and the grapes that they grow make some of the, the tastiest stuff you can imagine, wine that gladdens the heart, and oil that makes the face shine, and bread that strengthens the soul and gives comfort for the weary. I show up here Sunday by Sunday for that. And when I show up, I am given just enough sustenance, just enough hope, just enough of God's spirit to get me through another week. This is the community that holds me accountable as a Pharisee as a religious leader, who is just like all of the other Pharisees, just like all of us, aspiring to something different, something better than what we were handed by the past. This is the community that reminds me what it is to be a church. That's a hotly contested word in this culture. It's not always a word that we want to own. But I think it's something to live up to. That's a vision, if you like. That's a vision for how people of God can gather and make a difference in their world. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding me what our cornerstone is, what it means to be a church.